0: Happy Easter. So glad to have you here. Uh, It's an exciting day for our church because we have a lot of you that we haven't seen since Christmas. So we're really glad that you're here. I I, I grew up like that. I I didn't go to church much as a kid, and so I get it. I, I, I was definitely what I call a CEO Christian most of my childhood, Christmas and Easter only. And so... I I get that, but our goal is to try to help get you back before next Christmas, so hopefully we can do that. And uh, in all seriousness, we're really glad that you're here. This is a a big day for every church, really. Uh, In America, it's uh, Easter Sunday is still very, very much celebrated, and we're here today right now to try to get in touch with why. So why don't you bow with me and let's pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Father, we indeed thank you for... um, what we've experienced so far this morning, with Troy and his team leading us in some meaningful worship and then being sung to by Danielle, seeing some stories of life change. God, hopefully our hearts are now prepared and our minds are attuned to your truth for us that we wanna now assimilate into our lives. So, Lord, we've got people uh, from all uh, parts of the, uh, of the spectrum here this morning spiritually. Lord, some of us are veteran believers who come to church all the time. Others of us, Lord, are, are visiting here today. Some of us are, are people who have been walking with you for years. Some of us are seeking. And so I pray, God, that as we uh, rally together now around this understanding of Easter, that you might speak to our hearts and our minds the truth that you have prepared for us, each of us individually. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So you'll notice from your bulletin that I have simply one question for you this morning. It's the title question, and that is, what on earth am I here for? Uh, What on earth am I here for? Uh, Philosophers and theologians have been asking this question for thousands of years, way before Rick Warren made it popular uh, about a decade ago. And though there are a few in this world that just don't care about this question, the reality is most people do. Most people, at some point in their life, and maybe even you here this morning, eventually ask the question why am I here? I mean, outside of having a good job, raising semi-good kids, saving for retirement, all the things that we do, why am I here on planet Earth? It's a good question to ask. And yet think about it, even out of the people that ask this, however, few people really ever find a definitive answer to this profound question. What on earth am I here for? Many people have trouble answering in a profound way the answer to this question. And it's sad. Because in every other area of life, you and I have learned that if you don't know what your target is, or if you don't know what you're shooting at, there's a really good chance that you won't hit it, right? But we've learned that in almost every other area of life. So spiritually speaking, if you don't know what you're really shooting for, if you don't know what you're here for, it's going to be hard to hit it. Matt Eamons, you might remember that name, was a 23-year-old professional rifle marksman who won a gold medal in the Olympics about a decade ago in Greece. And he would have won two gold medals if it wasn't for a very rare and costly mistake that he made. In the 50-meter three-position rifle event, after he already won one gold medal, Eamons was vastly ahead of all the other competitors. After nine shots, it was a shoe in for him to win his second gold medal. In fact, for his last shot, all he had to do was hit the target. He didn't need to get a bullseye or anything else. All he had to do was hit the target, and he was assured of a gold medal. And so standing in lane two, Eamon shot at the target with a score that would have been 8.1, more than enough for the gold, but he quickly realized that he had shot the wrong target, that he actually crossed lanes and shot into lane three, hitting the target in lane three. And when you looked at the picture 10 years ago in the paper, his look was just incredulous. He realized what he did right away. The Washington Post, in reporting on this, would say, and I quote, it was an extremely rare mistake in elite competition. And Eamons was given a zero for the score, and he came in eighth with no gold medal. But thankfully, he had one right before that. You know, the reality is, is that many people today live life kind of like that, don't they? They live life aiming at a target only to realize at some point you're shooting at the wrong target. And we do so innocently. We're thinking we're shooting at the right target. But part of the message, I think, of Easter Sunday is to help right ourselves, to help balance ourselves, to get us focused on what really matters. What on earth am I really here for? And so I want us to wrestle with that question this Easter day on why we are here. Now, it will not surprise you guys that seeing that you're in church and seeing that it's Easter and seeing that you're listening to a Christian pastor talk about life, that I'm going to use the Bible. Will that shock you guys? I hope not. Garrison Keillor, the great radio storyteller of the last century once said, and I quote, when it comes to a choice between scripture and our own imaginations, one does well to choose scripture. And I think he's right. And so I got to let you know, uh, kind of in an autobiographical way, that the Bible has helped me more than any other book discover my purpose in life. Listen, not my calling as a pastor, my purpose as a man. My purpose as a husband, my purpose as a father, my purpose as a friend. The Bible, more than anything else, has helped me discover why it is that I'm here. And so without wasting any more time, let's dive in and begin to answer this universal question that we all ask, and here is our starting place. And this might seem simple, but bear with me. This is good. And that is that you are here because God has placed you here. That's the starting place that many push back on today. You'll see that in a minute. And that's why we need to start here. You are here because God has placed you here. In other words, God is sovereign. He is powerful. He is good. He is personal. He is intimate. And it is not an accident. It is not by chance that you are here on planet Earth. It's by design. If you don't believe me, look at Genesis 1, verse 1, the very starting point of it all in the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So pause right there. God made everything that we see and even what we do not see. And just so we know that his grand plan included you and me as well, it says in verse 27 of the first chapter of Genesis, and then God created man. In his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So God didn't just stop at making this world, he made you and I. And one of the things that you don't want to miss at this point, that's really for another sermon, but it's profound stuff, is that it says God made you in his image. He didn't say that about your dog. He didn't say that about your cat. He didn't say that about your fish. He didn't say that about the mountains. No, only human beings are described as being made in the image of God. And theologians' best stab at what that means is that we are self-conscious, rational beings capable of moral choices like God and capable of freely giving and freely receiving love. And before we move on, just pause right there. Talk about purpose. Just by admitting that God is the one who has placed you here, now you're starting to see why there might be some purpose and rhyme and reason behind your existence. Because you're like God. You're created in his image. And he has a plan for you. He has put you here. And it's not by chance. And so this really becomes the first crossroad that you and I have today in discovering and embracing the purposes of God that he declares on your life. Are you going to acknowledge and accept that he placed you here. And in placing you here has made you for a great purpose. Because we've already established, rooted in creation, is the fact that the creator has to have a plan. God didn't make this world for no reason. He made this reason so that those on it would have a purpose, and we're just about to move on to discover that. But before we do, I simply wanna suggest to you that if you opt for chance rather than creation, there's a really good chance you're not going to find your purpose in life, that people that deny that God is and that God is the one who's in control of all things, they have a very difficult time finding purpose. In fact, most of them just eventually give up. Bertrand Russell, the famous 20th century atheistic philosopher, once admitted this, I think, in a moment of honesty when he said, and I quote, unless you assume the existence of God, the question of life's meaning and purpose is irrelevant. And I think he's right. I I think if you live a life that says God doesn't really matter and I'm not really sure God's even in the picture, and if he is, I don't know how, well, then have fun trying to find purpose and meaning in life because the reality is is that you're not going to find a lot of purpose and meaning outside of your faith in God, And, and that's the starting point of all of this. And yet the reason that I tell you this is a crossroad is because we still got many voices in our western half of the world today that argue it's all about chance. That really it's just a chance thing that you're here. And really there's been a debate raging for about three or 400 years in our post-enlightenment society that argues that theism says that you believe in a creator, but naturalism is a worldview that says that what you see is what you get and that that's all that there is. And so really the battle is between theism and naturalism. The competing ideas is that there is either a personal, self-revealing creator who loves you and has made you, or it's all about chance and there really is no purpose or rhyme or reason behind it all. And our starting point today is I hope you are willing to be today here to at least give creation, no pun intended, a chance. That you're willing to give creation its due. So with that said, why then are we here? Back to our original question. What is it that God now says, now that he's in the picture, is our purposes for planet Earth? Two additional thoughts I want to share with you this Easter Sunday morning that will get you going on answering this question. Two thoughts that will significantly move the ball down the field for you when it comes to finding and living your ultimate purpose in life. And so here's the heart of it all, and that is God has placed you here to know him and to be known by him. I've chosen my words very carefully here, so bear with me on this. Some of you think this is simple stuff. It's really more complicated thing. God has placed you here to know him, and many Christians admit that, but also to be known by him. In other words, reading between the lines here, don't miss that I'm suggesting to you that life is ultimately a relational pursuit more than anything else and that you and I are not fulfilled without significant and ongoing relationship and that our ultimate relationship is going to be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ and God the Father. You know, at one point in his ministry, Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment out of all the 400-some-odd commandments in the Old Testament was. And without blinking, Jesus said this. He said, that's easy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then a little while later, Jesus was praying for his disciples and even for us who would come to believe. And he prayed this. He said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then reflecting even years later on this, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to a group of already convinced believers who are struggling with moving on in their faith, he says this, but now you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. So add it all up. Love the Lord your God with everything in you so that you may know him and even be known by him Don't miss the constant thread in each of these passages and hundreds of others in the Bible, they're talking about a personal relationship with Almighty God in a way never before seen before the time of Jesus, talking about God in familiar terms, God who is knowable, God who is accessible in a daily ongoing personal relationship. And what you guys need to know is that this message that Jesus came with blew away the religious leaders of his day and the people of his day to the point that they were really ticked at him. They really were. I mean, when Jesus used these initial words, the religious leaders of his day from a Jewish background were saying, this doesn't sound like Yahweh who we're supposed to fear and obey and sacrifice to. Eventually, the New Testament would help men make that link and see that. But initially, they said, this is almost scandalous. And even more dichotomous, those who originally heard these words from a Greco-Roman background, were sitting there going, you know what? We were taught that there's multiple deities and that they're really human-like and that they even have nasty traits like vengeance and jealousy and hatred and envy. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes along and he says, why don't we call God Father? Why don't you guys call me friend? Why don't we talk about things like love and faith? And then Paul the Apostle would say, i got a better idea. Let's call him Abba, which means daddy, back in the New Testament times. And they were going, you can't call God that. You can't do that. That's not right. That's not the God that we know. And Jesus says, but that's the God that is. He says, God is familiar. He made you. He's personal. He loves you. He wants to know you in personal relationship, just like you know other human beings in a personal relationship. You know what they're like, how they function, what their traits are. We just simply, with God, call them attributes. But we do that to get to know him. So don't miss this, guys. God made us for a purpose, and the best summary of that purpose is to say that he made us to know him and be known by him, and then start to find our core satisfaction and sufficiency in him. Why were you put here on earth? Lots of reasons, But the number one thing on the list, what C.S. Lewis would call first things first, is that we might know God. And before we move on to talk about how we can know him, because this is the whole point of Easter Sunday, I want to just mention very briefly some comments on this idea of being known. In our sunrise service at 6.30, somebody came up to me afterward and said, you know, I've been a Christian for 30 years, never really thought about this idea that it's not just about me knowing God, but being known by God. So let me ask you the question I asked them. And this is really the leading question. Have you ever had somebody truly and fully know you? And I mean, really fully and truly know you. All your faults and foibles, all the things that you don't want to show anybody. Have you ever had somebody actually know you that way and still like you? Have you? I, I, I get people all the time tell me, usually after a sermon or a wedding or a funeral or a hospital visit like I did yesterday, they'll say, You know what, Pastor, you're just so wonderful. You're just such a wonderful man. And when they say that to me, I say, well, thank you, I'm glad I could minister to you, but then every time I think to myself, if you only really knew me, I mean, I'm serious, if you only knew what my kids and my wife know, if you only knew what it's like to really live with me, with all my imperfections and foibles, I'm not sure you would jump to the head of the line to say what you just said about me. And again, I don't even have a low self-image, so this isn't like, you know, me down on myself. It's just that it doesn't take a low self-image for me to know me. And what makes me a Christian, don't miss this, this was key to my conversion, is the fact that God, who knows me the most, everything, even what other peoples don't see, also says, I love you, and I want to be in personal and eternal relationship with you. And in 1981, in my little hometown of Chagrin Falls, when that message was explained to me, it blew me away. My initial response was, it couldn't be. There's no way that God, who sees the first 17 years of my life and what a mess it was, would really care that much, because certainly a lot of other people didn't. But the message of the gospel is, he does. As we're going to see in just a second here, the message of Easter is the fact that you can know him. You see, being known and yet being fully and continually loved is one of the most powerful, healing, profound realities of life. That's why I argue that meaning and purpose in life is a relational pursuit and nothing more and nothing less. So, so, so how does one then truly know God? How does that happen? Two nights ago on, on uh, our, our Good Friday night, I uh, explained to the two groups here the, the biggest problem with Christianity today is how my pastor friend Tom Schrader says it, and here's how you got to view it. He says that our theology of ourselves does not descend low enough, and our theology of God does not ascend high enough. And because of that, we tend to, to kind of uh, minimize our own sin and our own need for grace, and we don't really have a high enough view of God, so the gap is not very big. Therefore, you get to something like Good Friday and you go, okay, yeah, it's nice religious observance, but okay. And then you get to Easter Sunday and say, yeah, he rose from the dead. Okay. But until you widen the gap, until you see yourself for who you really are and your utter need for God, without which you will not spend eternity with him, until you see that and then see how good and holy God is, you won't get Good Friday and you won't get Easter Sunday. Because when you see God as holy, as one who can't even be in the presence of sin, let alone your sin, then you realize that there's a problem there. There's a gap. But then you're ready to understand Good Friday that God completely closes the gap by what Jesus came to do for you. That Jesus came, he bore the sin of the whole world upon himself, including yours. He died in your place, maybe look at it that way, or as we sang earlier, he trampled death by death. And then the whole message of Easter Sunday is, is that God through his power raised Jesus from the dead so that you and I truly can have faith and confidence that Jesus is who he said he was, and that Jesus is living today, that's what we sang about that, and that we can know him today. I'm not here to all trample on any other religion, I'm really not, but I've studied world religions, and I can tell you, there's one thing that almost all major religions have in common, and that is that their founder is still dead and in the grave. And they all claim that, by the way, that's not dissing them, they're out. they claim that. Buddha didn't claim a resurrection. Muhammad didn't claim a resurrection. Moses didn't claim a resurrection. Uh, uh, no, only Jesus came along and says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. And to show you that, I will be in the ground, the belly of the whale. Remember the analogy of Jonah? I'll be in the ground, belly of the whale for three days, and then I'm going to rise again, which is why it was such a big deal when he did, because he is who he said he was. And then God just says one more thing to you and I after that. He says, once you understand that, you're very close, but you're not there yet, you then need to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior into your life, become a follower of him for any of this to become true for you. And this is where it gets sticky for most Americans. I said earlier, I spent the first 17 years of my life kind of dabbling in, in religious things. You know, I was a CNE Christian. I go Christmas and Easter, and, you know, I, I'd, re- I'd maybe read an odd book. I don't think I read any book before 18, but I read an odd book or whatever and, and what have you. And, and, uh, and, you know, if you had said to me when I was 16 years old, Are you a Christian? honestly, I would have said, well, I'm not a Turk, so yeah, I guess I'm a Christian. I mean, what else would I be? I mean, I'm, I'm living in small town Americana, and I go to church a couple times a year, so of course. And then if you had followed up by saying, do you believe in Jesus Christ? I would have remembered confirmation class, you know, and given lip service to this thing, and I, and I probably, just to get you out of my face, I would have said, yes, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. But even at 16, I knew that if you had asked me this question, I knew what the answer would be. I, I, if you had said, do you have an ongoing, vital, daily relationship with Jesus Christ that gets you out of bed, gives you meaning and purpose in life, and drives you in everything that you do, <laughs> I would have laughed. You've got to be kidding me. No, that does not quite describe my faith. And the reality is, is that it was only through a conversion experience where I got to the point where I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that my spiritual life went from black and white to technicolor. And the reason I tell you that story is because I think that's what happens to a lot of us even on Easter Sunday. That today is a day that the light goes on in our head and we realize that he really is who he said he was. And that we've just been playing games up to this point. And that even in the midst of playing games, God isn't down on you. He loves you. He still came from you. You're still in his image. He still has purpose and meaning for your life. But he says, when is enough is enough? enough? When are you going to finally come home? in the right relationship with me. And as you saw in our video stories, Easter Sunday is a great time to do that. And I'm gonna give you a chance to do that in just a minute here. Don't ever forget, you were created to know God and to be known by him. And everything else flows from this. Now, We're wrapping up here, but more quickly, there's one more overriding reason that I need to give you that God, the Bible gives us for our purpose for living. And we're not going to explore this one too much today, but it's very important to note because this will take you a lifetime to learn and its core to becoming, to being being a Christian, not becoming a Christian, being one. And that is that God has placed you here to love others. He's placed you here to love others. And so simply notice here, guys, that we are continuing a relational theme as we talk about our purposes, that it begins with God placing you here relationally. You need to know him relationally. Now he says you pour into others relationally in love. It's interesting. In answering the question posed to him about what is the greatest commandment, Jesus actually gave a two-part answer. Because he said, right after he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then so they couldn't weasel out of it, he then told the great parable, the story of the Good Samaritan, in which he said, and by the way, your neighbor is not just the person living next to you or the person you like at work or or whatever. No, your neighbor is anybody that God brings in your path, whether you know them, whether you like them, anybody that's around you, you're to love them. And then the first century church just just picked up this theme and ran with it. So that in Romans 13.10, it says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The fulfillment of it. It caps it all off. Or as James says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. In other words, you're fulfilling your purposes here in life. So the great purpose in life, don't miss this, guys, is to love. Love. And yet I know how so many of you think, you're thinking, well, love, that's kind of mamby-pamby. I mean, I can get that on a Hallmark card. I get that in Oprah. I hear that sung about in country songs. I read that in romance novels, or at least you're told that they're in romance novels. But I mean, it's, it's, you know, love. Here's the distinction. The love the Bible talks about is not the love that our world knows today. Do we all understand that? The love that our world talks about today in every area that I just mentioned, tell me if this isn't true, this kind of love. You fall into it and then you fall out of it. If you're doing emotionally well and you're mostly tied to another person, then you love them, but if not, well then let bygones be bygones. Love goes up and down with circumstances and changing scenes and all of that, according to our world. That's not biblical love, not even in the least. Now here's how the Bible defines love. It says it is a commitment to another person's welfare to always act toward them in such a way that is for their benefit. Whoa. So now we're talking about a different kind of love. This is why the Bible associates love with other-centered action and sacrifice. It's why its synonyms in the Bible are serving, giving, relating, and helping. It's why the Bible says whenever you're verbally interacting with somebody, if you love them, you either be encouraging them or in love, speaking truth to them in a very kind and loving way. And so don't miss this, guys. A significant part of your purpose in life involves your spouse, your kids, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, and your fellow students. Anyone and everyone that God brings in your path, your purpose is to love and to relate to them in a way that is healing and helpful. That's what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. And again, I know many Christians think, they think well, Jamie, that doesn't sound all that hard. Try it. You know, I, I said Sunday night, I didn't think of this till last Sunday, until the evening service. Sometimes I'm just slow. But I said in the evening service last week, I said, you know, it's a lot easier to be a legalist than it is a lover. It's a lot easier to live by rules than it is relationship, isn't it? And yet the heart of love in the scriptures, if I'm reading it right, it's not about rules. It's about relationship. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not envy. It does not boast. It is not self-seeking. That's the descriptors of love in the Bible. And all I know is that when I wake up every day and have to say my biggest task today is to be kind, patient, loving to everybody around me, I'm like, I'd rather live by rules. I and mean, that's a tall order. And yet that's exactly how you and I Live a fulfilled, meaningful, significant, Christ-like life. And all I know is that as hard as it is, when I do that, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. Let me wrap it up in a sentence. God created you to know him and to love others. This is the foundation of it all. If you get this, then you are primed to be able to live life on purpose. Are there other purposes in life? Of course there are. You got vocational pursuits, your job, you got hobbies, recreation, exploring and enjoying life, all good and fine things. Arguably, one could even make a case that scripture says these are good things, but none of them are core, none of them are foundation. Only the things that we've noted today are the things that God says you're going to find your real meaning and purpose in, in knowing him and loving others. One story, one thought, and then we're going to pray. The year was 1991 and that's a true story. Kim and I were living in Detroit and my first pastor at Hannah uh, was just a little baby, my oldest, and we were gonna eventually have two more kids but then we just had one and one on the way. And I don't know if you guys remember these days but you remember the early days when you didn't have two nickels to rub together and you were buying very old beat up used cars to drive around. So in that year we were driving a 1983 Chevy Malibu station wagon. I got a picture of it here on the screen for you. That's what we were driving. And it was an ugly thing, and and yet we paid 800 bucks for it. It got us from point A to point B, and that was our car that we drove, the main car that we drove. Mine was even worse. That Christmas, we had to drive from Detroit to Cleveland, where we're from, a little town outside of Cleveland. And I don't know if you guys remember, but around Christmas time in the Midwest, there's this thing called snow. It's this white stuff that floats from the, the heavens, and it comes down and covers the earth, and it's very cold. And as we were driving down the Ohio Turnpike that year, heading home for Christmas, it was cold and it was snowy. And by the time we hit Cleveland, because it's was in the snow belt, it was blizzard conditions. And yet, because we'd been on the freeway for three hours, my gas tank was empty, so I had to stop for gas. Now, I'm really going to date myself, because this was before the days, and some of you young people can't even imagine this, when you actually had to go inside to pay for your gas. They didn't have, like, credit cards at the pump. You didn't even really use credit cards back then. You actually got out, pumped your gas, and it wasn't digital. It was this thing that rotated over and over. And then you had to walk, and was a real pain. You had to walk inside, and you had to pay cash, you know, that green stuff. And then you walk back out and get in your car and be on your way. So I was doing all of that. And gas was about a dollar a gallon back then. Again, I'm dating myself. Fifteen-gallon tank. It was on empty. So I walked in after filling up the tank, and it was snowy and cold. And the guy looked at me and said, that'll be $45. I said, $45, I put 15 gallons of gas in. I said, how much is gas here? He said, well, the gas you put in was $3 a gallon. I said, how can you charge $3 a gallon for gas? I know it's Christmas, but I mean, there's no way you could charge me three. He said, sir, you put racing fuel in your car. Now, I know a lot about cars. I love cars. I'd never heard of something like that. And I said, I got two questions for you. He said, what is racing fuel and why do you have it? And he said, Well, we're near a raceway, you dope. He said, that's why we have racing fuel, because a lot of people come here to race, you know, to get their cars filled up. And he said, and what racing fuel is, is 100 octane fuel. I'd never heard of that. I heard of 87, 89, 91, which you and I used that. Never heard of 100-octane fuel. Then the immediate thought that came to my mind was, is this going to hurt my car? And I said, what will this do to my car? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, man, the old lady's going to run great. (laughs) (laughs) And sure enough, I get in, and she was just raring to go as we made it (laughs) over to the east side of Cleveland. It was great. Racing fuel. I've never heard of something like that. Now, believe it or not, that story has a point. <laughs> and the point is this. You and I, forget about your car, you and I have choices every day on what we're going to put into our tank, your soul, right? Some of them are good, some of them are bad. Some of them are spiritual, some of them are not. You got, you got your choice. Even among the spiritual ones, though, you got lots of choices what you're going to put in your soul. And I would argue that some of them, when it comes to getting your engine going, is going to be 87 octane. Some might be 89, some might be 91. Lots of choices out there today. But what the Bible says is that only God, through his son Jesus, on Good Friday through his crucifixion for your sins, on Easter Sunday with his resurrection from the dead, only that is 100-octane fuel for your soul. That's what the Bible says. And the Bible says that if you dare fill your tank with him and make him your life pursuit... You will have a highly charged, high-octane life that won't always be easy. But when it comes to finding meaning and purpose, when it comes to your soul finally getting fed and coming home, that is what will do it. I've been at this 31 years, and I can attest that that is true. That only in Him has the hole in my soul ever even come close to being filled. Bob Buford, this is my closing thought, would say it this way. Buford would say you have three choices in your life. You can survive, you can succeed, or you can have a life of significance. And I think he's right. And you and I have all experienced those first two, right? We've experienced survival and success. When I was in seminary, it was survival mode. When I was in my first senior pastorate, I just lived to survive. Every day was like, God, get me through this. We all know what that's like. There have been times in my ministry and my life where I've experienced a lot of success. I got a wonderful marriage. I got three semi good kids. I got a great <laughs> church. I mean, I, I've, I've had some wonderful success in my life. But you know, it's interesting, as good as all those things are, at the end of the day, none of them, none of them have come close to the significance of knowing Jesus Christ. So here's what we're going to do I'm going to pray as we close our Easter time together. And as I do, as I said earlier, I wanna give some of you a chance to receive Christ for the very first time. You came in here today maybe thinking that you were fine and doing well spiritually, but now that we've kinda of looked at it in a biblical light, you say, I think I need Jesus. And then I'm gonna pray for the rest of you too that have been walking with him for a while and you just need to go into this week in 100% octane in your tanks, ready to take on life. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father. I thank you for this special day that we set aside in the Christian calendar to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ thank you for Troy and his team leading us in such a robust way and getting excited and focused on the resurrection of Jesus And father I pray that as we've talked about Jesus in light of significance and our purpose here on earth that Lord there might be some of us who the light in our head has finally gone on today like me years ago we realized that we've just been dabbling, and that it's time to truly come home to you. And so Lord, right where those people sit, they pray a prayer similar to this. They say, oh God, I, I know my need that I have for you. I know that my sin has created a gap and a chasm that I cannot bridge myself. And so I thank you for sending Jesus to be the one who is my sin bearer, the one who has forgiven me fully for everything and now will journey with me all the way to eternity. And I accept him right now as Lord and as Savior. And Father, I pray that as anybody would accept Christ here today, that they would mark today as the day that they drew a line in the sand, the day of their spiritual birthday, and a day that they made a decision to follow you and your son Christ through anything and everything. And Father, for the rest of us, I pray that as we go out of here now and as we get on with our day, that it most likely will include uh, friends, family, being with others, relaxing before the work week. I pray, God, that these thoughts would not leave our minds and our hearts the Lord, we give sober and wonderful thought to the purposes that we have in you and how this day is all about you coming for us. May we know you and be known by you, we pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Happy Easter.